0: Well, uh, most of you probably know that today is what we've called Biblical Sexuality Sunday. When the Canadian government passed Bill C-4 through the house, a, a group of us pastors talked about preaching on the, the Sunday after it had passed, and the, the law was pushed through so fast that we had some difficulty, at least initially, on, on settling a date and um, it was passed, at least before the house, just before Christmas, and some of the pastors said, at that time, kind of as we were already deciding and had already decided to preach right away on this thing, um, some of them said that they would rather preach on this in the new year. And so the original date that we had set was pushed back until the bill became law, 30 days after the Queen signed it. And this gave us the opportunity to kind of spread the word to a broader group of pastors. Um, now, I haven't heard of many Canadian pastors joining the initiative beyond kind of the the original group of us um, that were that are on this kind of group chat that we have. But I know of thousands of American pastors are going to join us today to preach on biblical sexuality. Now as you know, I already preached on this early in December, I think it was December 12th, um, because I had kind of already pulled the trigger and started studying and and we were going to do it on that day, but then we decided to to push it back and so I told the guys, well I'd I'd preach on it again on the set date. But many you know, famous and well-known pastors, especially in America, have joined us in this initiative. John MacArthur... Enthusiastically joined us and used his network to spread the word kind of all over the world. Steve Lawson preached last week at Grace Community Church on this very topic. James White also jumped on board. Tom Askell, I don't know if you know all of these people, but great brothers in the Lord, great pastors. Josh Bice and the G3 Network um, joined us as well. Pastor Dan Phillips, I know Kosti Hinn did a podcast on it. Nate Pickowitz. Um, Eki Texampornchai, uh, who is a friend of mine from seminary, kind of famous on Twitter, Nathaniel Jolly. Um, this is actually, as I've been thinking about it, a, a really a historic day for the church. I don't, I don't know of another time in history when so many pastors have come together to preach the same thing, and to stand really for righteousness in this world. Now, now I'm, I'm sure there have been other days like this, but this is a, a moment of unity and solidarity that's, that's really unprecedented in our times. Now, as you know, and as I already said, I preached through this topic on December 12th, but I, I wanted to, at that time, kind of lead the charge on this and, and, um, and hit it right away. That was the original Sunday that we were going to do it. Um, but we're going to do it again today. Now, another title for this initiative was Conversion Sunday. And of course, Bill C4 purports to be against conversion therapy. Conversion therapy sounds like a terrible dark ages practice, but the bill defines it in such a way That seeking to convert people to Christianity or teaching them to live according to God's word is now a criminal offense. And if you want to know more about the bill itself and what it says and what's in that bill, I would encourage you to, to look up the earlier message from December 12th, 2021. Today I want to focus less on the bill itself and more on the truth of God's word. This so-called law is an attack against God's law. It exalts itself against the truth of God. And I want to look at, it, look at it from that perspective. Truth versus myths. God's truth versus the government's and the world's lies. Now, I'm sure someone here might be tempted to think, well, why bother with this? You know, we're not going to change the government. We're not going to change the law. Or even I'm sure some some very good and faithful pastors might say, why bother kicking the beehive when you might just kind of sneak past it and not get stung? Or even further, why bother with this? We aren't really influenced here with these philosophies. Well, briefly in answer to that, as we think about why we want to do this today, I grant that we cannot change the law. The government will have to do that. We may not even be able to influence them at all. But we, the church, we are called to have a voice in society. We're to preach righteousness to the world. We're really the only ones that can preach righteousness to the world. We are to direct the government to its duty. And we're to warn them and to warn the world of God's coming judgment against sin. Like John the Baptist did, we're to say to the world, your sin is not lawful. Like our Lord did, we're to testify to them that their works are evil. Now they may not notice us, they may ignore us, but at least then we know that we are doing our duty in this world. But then again, perhaps they will hear us. Perhaps they will take notice. And then the gospel goes forth to the world. And often the gospel proceeds with the most power when the most power is exerted to silence its proclaimers and persecute its preachers. I think for too many ministers, being gracious means avoiding conflict that the world will not appreciate. Or being gracious means avoiding direct confrontations and calling the world to repentance. But that's not grace. That's cowardice. God gave us a spirit of, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And we're not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. John Calvin famously said, even a dog barks when its master is attacked. How could I be silent when the honor of my Lord is assailed? Or another version, I think of the same quote that I found. He says, A a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent without giving any sound. And so we want to give our little sound today in our little corner of the world and we might not change the government, but we'll give our bark, and perhaps by the power of God, it will be impactful in this world, and it'll be used to save sinners and bring them to salvation. Now, besides that, I expect or suspect that the world's thinking on sexuality has probably affected us more than we think. And if it hasn't, I suspect that it will at some point, and in this I'm especially thinking about our children. We need to prepare them for the assault that they will face as they go out into the world. They need to be equipped to think biblically and to defend themselves against the devil's lies. And as I said last time, we need to stand strong at the place where the battle rages. Many of the men who two years ago seemed like leaders in evangelicalism have been silent on a number of the the current issues of the day, social justice, on the necessity of having Sunday services, on keeping the church open, and now on biblical sexuality. What the church needs today is leaders who will take a stand, not ones who will stand back and watch. So I called this sermon Truth and Myths. Truth and Myths, C4, biblical sexuality, and the necessity of conversion. I want to kind of examine this as kind of from two sides I want to see God's truth versus the world's myths and I want to look at this over five areas God's truth versus the world's myths over five areas we want to examine first of all the foundation the source of our truth claims and then second we want to go back to creation the world says creation is a myth the world says gender is a myth and we will examine what God says and what our Lord Jesus Christ says. And then third, I want to look at the situation from both sides. That is the the situation in the world, the situation with man. What does the world say about man versus what the Scripture says about man? And then fourth, we'll look at the proposed solution to that situation. The government solution is Bill C-4, They have diagnosed the situation and brought forward their solution to the problem. But what is God's answer to the situation as he sees it? And then finally, we'll look at our commission. We'll see that our goal is the conversion of all people, the very thing that Canada has declared illegal. Now, of course, this truth versus language comes from the preamble of Bill C-4. And here it is, quote, It says, whereas conversion therapy harms, or sorry, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because among other things it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality Cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Now this statement itself is a truth claim. The truth, according to the government of our beloved country, is that gender identity and gender expression that conforms to birth gender... And specifically, preferring that gender identity or expression to, to other genders, that that is a myth. The truth, according to Canada, is that heterosexuality should not be preferred over other sexual orientations. And doing anything to encourage, promote, or engender heterosexuality or cisgender gender identity or gender expression is now a criminal offense In our country. In fact, the government says, according to their version of the truth, they say it's important to, and and let me just quote the whole thing. They say, whereas in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. And so what we have then is a truth war. The government claims to be the arbiter of truth, the ultimate authority in this matter of truth. And they say anything outside of their law is based on myths and should be discouraged and denounced. And all of this is very religious language. The world may not recognize this, but they have, they have set up a religion of their own. It's a religion of secular humanism, of materialism of safism and a mix of other philosophies and ideologies, but it is a religious um, mentality that the world has. And they think themselves, in their religion, they think themselves very tolerant because they embrace all forms of sin and welcome all kinds of ideas and philosophies. Under the name of this religion, you can believe whatever truth suits you. And you can embrace almost any practice so long as you allow all the others under the same banner to hold to their own truth. But the moment you say, well, hold on, this is wrong, or, or hold on, that's a sin, you will see that the world's tolerance only tolerates the world. And the one thing that they will not tolerate amongst all of their tolerance is the Christian message that you must repent and believe the gospel. The one thing they will not tolerate is when someone does to them the very thing that they do to all when someone says Christianity is true and your religion is false, your religion is based on myths, and then they won't tolerate that. The religion of our society is actually quite coercive. As can be seen in the very bill before us, they accuse us of coercion and yet they threaten us of arrest and imprisonment if we just teach on the truth of God's Word. The world and the government and the priests and the practitioners of this religion say believe our truth or face our wrath. Worship at our altar Or stay silent because if you speak against us, we will make you suffer. That is the religion of the world. Propagate your myths, they say, and go to jail. Well, let's look at the foundation then of this religion and compare it with the foundation of Christianity. And that's number one in our outline, the foundation, the word of God or the word of man. You see, every religion has a foundation. Every religion has an authority or a source for its truth claims. There's always at the bottom something that the rest of the structure sits upon. And for the Christian, that foundation is God Himself as revealed in His Word. Now, we could not know God on our own. Scripture tells us that He dwells in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen or can see Him. 1 Timothy 6.16 I want you to turn here to Matthew chapter 11 as we just think about this foundation upon which the Word stands and and this, this fact that we can't know God unless He reveals Himself to us. Look at Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start reading just a little way into verse 27. Jesus says there, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You see, to know God, two things have to happen. First, God Himself must reveal Himself to us through His Word. And if God had not chosen to reveal Himself to us, We could never have found Him out. We could have never discovered Him by looking at the world. But He has chosen to reveal Himself through the Word. But second, in order to know God, Jesus, as He says in this text, must reveal the Father to us. The Son must choose to reveal the Father. And I understand this to mean that to to be a salvific opening of the eyes. In order to really know God and truly know God, we must be saved. We must be born again. You see, in this context, look at, look up at verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then he thanks God for hiding these things in verse 25 from the wise and understanding. And we would ask, well, what things are you talking about, Jesus? Well, it would seem the things that lead to repentance and salvation. Again, look at, look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, just after he denounced these cities that would not repent, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now notice that Jesus sees this as God's gracious will. Grace is what opens our eyes to turn from sin and to come to know the one true God. The Father's gracious will and the Son's gracious choice enables is, is what enables sinners to repent and believe and enter into a relationship with God. But notice too in the context that, that Jesus' understanding of these things in no way undermines the call to everyone to come to Him. He did his miracles in those cities even though they would reject him. He warns them of the coming judgment and he calls all to come to him. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. and come to know God, we must repent. And we must come to Christ and we must come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the Word of God, the Scripture is how we come to know this. It's through God's Word that we come to know this. And Jesus Himself is called the Word of God. He is called the Word. He is the ultimate revelation of the Father. And so Christianity rests on this solid ground, on this foundation, that God has revealed Himself to man through His Son and through His Word, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament called the Bible. God Himself has spoken through the human authors so that we have God's Word in this book. And God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work through this book, through the Scripture, to save men and women so that they come to accept this book, not as the Word of men, but as the Word of God. This is what Paul thanked God for in that very important verse in 1 Thessalonians two thirteen, where Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this that when you, and he's speaking to the Thessalonians here, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. You see, God worked in the Thessalonians' lives such that they received the Word of God through Paul as the Word of God. And this is our foundation. This is the solid ground that we stand on. And upon this, everything that we believe and teach rests. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We don't believe what we believe for any other reason than that God said it. See, I don't want you to believe anything unless you're convinced that scripture teaches it. Scripture is our authority, not tradition not the practices of the past. Scripture is our authority, not reason, not our own thinking. The Scripture is our authority, not the Puritans, not the Reformers. Certainly not me, your pastor. Scripture itself is our authority and we can understand it and come to know it. God has given it to us as a revelation so that we can know Him through this Word and it is our authority. And what that means is that God Himself who speaks through His Word is our authority. And that means when someone believes or teaches something against God's Word, they are actually going up against God Himself. When God in His Word says something is true or something was created this way and you deny that or you reject that or you call it a myth, you are calling God a liar. You are resisting God in that moment. You are resisting His authority. That's why First John 5.10 says, whoever does not believe God made him a liar. If you don't believe God, you are making him a liar. You're making him out to be a liar. And the verse goes on, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And so scripture and God himself is the foundation of the Christian religion. This is is what everything stands on. Well, what is the foundation of the world's religion? What is the foundation of the thinking behind Bill C-4? And if we could trace it back to its source, the foundation of the world's religion is the sinful desires of men. The sinful thoughts of men. The world and our government have exalted themselves to the place of God. They have decided what is right and wrong for themselves. They have set themselves up as the authority and they have determined that they will decide what is truth and what is myth and so we need to decide that each and every canadian needs to decide who are we going to listen to who are we going to obey are we going to have the thoughts of sinful men as our authority are we going to have our own sinful thoughts as our authority or even our, our own sinful selves? Or are we going to listen to the Almighty? Are we going to listen to God Himself, our Creator, who made us and loves us? If we listen to God, at least in these times, we might face the temporary wrath of the government. But if we listen to the government and the world and the sinful men at their foundation, then we will face the wrath of God in hell forever. And so choose your foundation well. Well, let's go to the second comparison here. Let's go to creation. You see, both religions have creation accounts. And so number two, creation, is it male and female or something else? Christianity teaches that God created both men and women in his image. God made us male and female. He made us to marry one another, to enter into a marriage covenant with one another. And marriage is a commitment of one man and one woman. And that commitment is a commitment made before God to be faithful to one another in a one flesh relationship until death. Marriage, this commitment of one man and one woman was designed by God. Mankind was designed by God. Male and female, we were created. Made for one another, made to be married to one another, at least in the majority of cases. We were made for one another, male and female. Some might not marry, but, but that's, that's how we've been created. Genesis 1.26 and I, I guess we could turn there if you'd like to see that. Genesis one twenty six very well known. Very foundational to this whole thing. This is what God reveals about His creation. He says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, on the earth you see we were made to represent god in the world we are in his image the text says and as his representatives we're to marry and reproduce in the world god said be fruitful and multiply that's his blessing on them and when God made the woman in chapter 2, which kind of goes into more detail on chapter 1, He brings or He brought the, the man and the woman together in marriage. And in Genesis 2.23, it says, Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the first marriage. The man leaves his father and his mother, and he's to hold fast in that covenant commitment to his wife, and they are going to be a one flesh relationship from that time on. And this one flesh union of a man and a woman is designed, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And in this relationship, the husband represents Christ who loved his church and gave himself up for her. Christ is the head of the church, and in the same way, the husband glorifies God in the marriage by loving his wife sacrificially and leading his wife and his family. And in this relationship, the wife represents the church who has gladly taken Christ as her Savior and head and who rejoices in the one flesh union And in the same way, the wife submits to her husband to glorify God in the marriage, which means that she comes under his leadership and and they serve together in everything that they do. And through this union, they are now to serve God as one, just just as the church is united to Christ and serves God together with Christ. And through this union, in the intimate act of marriage, If God wills, children are born into this world and raised by mom and dad. Godly children are are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And Jesus himself affirmed this understanding of marriage in Matthew 19, where he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, Scripture teaches that any sexual activity outside of marriage, any sexual activity outside of the safety and the covenant commitment of marriage, is forbidden by God. It is sin. And that includes any sexual activity with oneself or with someone else who is not your spouse. Whatever that sexual activity might be, we call it sexual immorality. And to the point of, of intimacy, we call it fornication. That is sin. Or if one is married, sexual activity outside of that covenant commitment is called adultery, and that is sin. Or any such activity with another person of the same gender homosexuality, whether it's legally married, although that's not the definition of marriage, but whether legally married or not, it is sin in God's eyes because it is contrary to God's design. And included in this would also be the desires of the heart for such things. What Scripture calls lusts, desires, and thoughts that are contrary to God's design are sin. And included here as well would be desires or thoughts or identifying oneself contrary to the gender that one was created by God, whether male or female, or to identify oneself as something else. That is sin. Or another sin would be to deny God's creation by dressing or expressing yourself contrary to the gender in which you were created. Scripture teaches us that men should act like men and look like men, and women should act like women and look like women. To do otherwise is to mar the image of God in which we are created, and therefore to sin against God in our thoughts or in our actions. You see, we were made to glorify God, and that means living according to who we were created to be as male and female, and living within the boundaries that God has established for us in His Word. Now, when we come to examine the other side, we see the hypocrisy of the world and the extent to which they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because on the one hand, they want to deny creation. They recognize that, that if God is the creator, they are accountable to him. And so they try to deny that we've been wonderfully made by an infinite and wise and good creator. But then they also won't acknowledge the implications of their replacement theory for God. You see, even evolution, for example, requires both male and female. Even apart from God, logic teaches what would be the natural and right relations for men and women. But the world tries to deny science or nature or or call it whatever you will. And why do they deny what is so obvious? Scripture again has the answer because God has given them up to the desires of their sinful hearts. You see, when we refuse to honor God, God hands us over to deeper and deeper forms of sin. And you can see that in Romans chapter 1. And this giving up or this giving over to sin is actually itself part of God's judgment against sin. Even this Bill C4, even this law is part of God's judgment on our nation. But now the LGBTQ2 plus S community says, no, we were we were born this way. And to that I say first, you weren't born that way. According to the theory of evolution, you weren't born that way. Evolution would have less and less LBDGTQ uh, if it was true. But of course, evolution is just a denial of our creator and it's not true. But secondly, let's answer that question with a question. Do you think people are born thieves? Do you think people are born liars? Think people are born selfish or adulterers or fornicators? You see, once again, scripture explains our situation much better than the world can. And that leads into the third thing we want to look at. Let's look at number three, the situation. Christianity teaches the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, whereas the world wants to claim the authority of man. Scripture teaches that we are born in a state of sin. Scripture teaches that we are born sinners. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. First Kings 846 says there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 143 verse 2 says enter not into judgment with your servant for no one living is righteous before you. And of course this is a prayer to God. He doesn't want the psalmist doesn't want God to judge him because he recognizes that he is not righteous in and of himself before God. And so it's a a plea there almost for forgiveness, but a recognition that no one living is righteous before you. And Proverbs 20 verse 9 says rhetorically, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. But Scripture also teaches that we are culpable for our sin. We ourselves commit sin the sin. We ourselves choose the sin. We ourselves are guilty for the sin that we choose. Now, each of us inclines to different sins according to our personalities, according to our upbringing, according to our opportunities and choices, and a number of other factors. But we shouldn't be surprised then that the world is pushing such sin, even to the extent that it's illegal to condemn it, or teach it, uh, uh, teach against it, or warn against it. The sinful world is trying to suppress the voice of their conscience. And so they gather together to affirm one another in their sin. Even as Romans 1 ends, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things, and he just listed off a, a number of sins, including homosexuality and, and really all kinds of sins there in the context of Romans 1, But even though they knew God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The world likes to gather together and and, and encourage one another in their sin, that they would go deeper and deeper into their sin and their denial of God. And so Scripture teaches us about the depravity of man and so we're not surprised to find laws like this being made in our society. But the world sees the situation very differently. They say there is no God. The world says they have no sin. And they do their best to deny judgment too. And they turn evil around so far that they would accuse us of sin for preaching God's Word and righteousness. And they would even persecute us and prosecute us maybe even for a message like this one what the world and the government and sinners in general forget is that god is the creator and he reserves the right to judge those who dishonor him with their lives this is god's world and he will judge it in righteousness act 17 30 Man has usurped God's authority now by sinning against him, but God has not given up his authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and he's going to return and exercise that authority and judgment on the world soon. And that then leads to our fourth difference between Christianity and the world's, or Christianity and the government's religion. Number four, the the solution to this whole thing. What is the solution to this whole thing? Is it Christ or the government? This time, let's begin with the world's solution. We Christians, according to the world, we Christians are the problem, and this bill is the solution. The world's solution is to coerce us to adopt their corrupted morality with threats of fines or imprisonment. And if they can't have that, they will settle with us backing off into silence that they might enjoy their sin in peace. But of course, if God and His Word is truly our foundation, and if we believe what He has revealed about creation, and we have come to see the situation through the lens of Scripture that man is depraved... That man is born in trespasses and sins and even dead in trespasses and sins and by nature children of wrath and headed because of their sin to hell. When we come to believe that, how can we remain silent in this world? You see, we have the solution to man's problem. We have the answer. The problem is sin and the solution is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God the Son. And he added to himself a human nature, to his divine nature, so that he could save us from our sins. He came to this world as both God and sinless man. He came to show us the Father. And he lived as a man in our place, as our representative. And he did this because of our sin, because our sin separated us from a holy God. And He died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus made a way, and it's the only way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. And Jesus proved that He's able to save us from our sins by rising from the dead. Our Savior is not dead. He is alive and He is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And He's here with us even now, even in this moment, He's spiritually here with us. And He's here to forgive sins and to forgive all sins. And He calls and He works even through sinful and weak preachers as He did 2,000 years ago. And He says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is willing and He is able to forgive your sins, but you must come to Him. And you must take your, His yoke upon yourself. You must renounce your life of sin, all of your sins, and you must renounce even your supposed good works and trust in nothing but Jesus Christ to save And that brings us then to our fifth and final point. I called it number five, the commission. The necessity of conversion or not. The world and the government say that we must not try to convert anyone. At least not homosexuals, transgender or non-cisgender individuals. They say again that such thinking is based on myths, the myths that God's design and what nature itself teaches is to be preferred. Now, of course, this wicked bill allows such people to attempt to convert heterosexuals and cisgender identifying and expressing individuals and it allows them to try to convert people into their sinful and God-denying lifestyles. In fact, you can't even attempt to stop your own children, according to this bill, who are deceived and going in that direction without the risk of criminal prosecution. What wickedness! God, have mercy on our country, forgive our sins, and heal our land. Now, brethren, we are called to preach this gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, We're called to pray for all men that they might be saved or at least to pray as Jesus did in John 17 that those who the Father has given Him out of the world that they might be saved. We don't want to see anyone go to eternal punishment. We don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked but that they would turn from their ways and live. And our commission is to make disciples of all nations. To call all people to come to Jesus Christ. To come to Him and be a disciple of His means turning away from all sin. Scripture calls it conversion. It's a work of God in the heart. Conversion is a a transformation of the desires. A turning from the world to God, turning from the world's religion to worship God and love God and live for Him with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. And we are called by the grace of God to convert all people to Jesus Christ. This is what we do. This is our mission. This is our commission. This is what we're all about as a church. And we do it not by coercion, but by pleading with sinners to repent and by warning them of God's judgment and by wooing them with the glories of Christ and the glories of God and the, the joys of heaven. Your sin will not satisfy. Sinner, come to God through Jesus Christ and enjoy Him forever. That is our call to conversion. And in a sense, everything that the Christian does is a practice, service, or therapy designed to reduce sin in the world because everything that the Christian does is for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And part of that glory is when God reveals himself by saving sinners and forgiving them of their sin through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By the grace of God and the power of the gospel, we are called to be instruments of change in people's lives. God's truth changes sinners, converts them to Christ, and transforms them. And if that's an, indict- an indictable offense in this country, then I'm going to stand with God. But know this, O government, and know this, O world, that you are an offense to God and His truth will prevail. Call it a myth. Call it a sin. Call it a crime, if you will. Call it what you want, but know that you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath, and God will call you to account for your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your truth. We thank you, Lord, for setting a a great foundation for us in your Word, that through your Word we could come to know you. We thank you for teaching us about who we are in your word as male and female and showing us the situation in this world that we are all fallen sinners worthy of your wrath. But Father, we thank you that you offer the one true solution, salvation through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have given us the message of this salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to proclaim that message in this world, and that we would believe these truths with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.